This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, Namilla Benson with you and welcome to The Art Show. Today I'm bringing you one of my favourite interviews from the year, a conversation I recorded with the American art critic Jerry Saltz. One silver lining for many of us facing lockdown this year was finding more time to read and to actually absorb what we were reading. Jerry's book, How to Be an Artist, came out in March of 2020 and in the US, it quickly became a bestseller. I reckon part of that success might have to do with the comforting, practical, witty advice Jerry offers about living a creative life. I found so much pleasure in reading this book during such a weird, uncertain time. And in fact, it sits on my desk in uh, the home studio. But Jerry's philosophy really resonated with me. As I told him at the beginning of our convo, here's Jerry Saltz. That's such a nice introduction. Thank you. And I love being in Australia this way. Well, it was such great advice from start to finish in your book. And I imagine it was written and first published long before COVID-19 emerged. I'm wondering, do your rules for being an artist still apply in this strange new world we find ourselves in? Really, that's a great question. I guess what I'm thinking is that this book is written for all of us that everyone that's ever had a creative urge, which frankly means everyone who's ever lived. Now, that takes many, many different forms, but more often than not, we're discouraged from doing those things. But I think in this terrible, terrible pause, as as the angel of death walks among us, this pause allows a certain moment for us to understand something, which is that creativity was there with us in the caves. Um, We would never have survived were we not creative and able to adapt. Darwin, to the end of his life, argued that what he meant by survival of the fittest was not about being strong or mean or selfish, survival dependent, depended on the ability to adapt. And the ability to adapt is the definition of art. And Namilla, what's happened is, under the exact circumstances that hundreds of millions of people now find themselves living under, that is sheltering in place as much as possible, These are the very conditions that creativity thrives. That means under pressure, in intimate surroundings, smaller spaces, with things being done. Let's say you always wanted to write that stupid song or that idiotic lyric, or you you had some silly dance you wanted to do, or you decided that you wanted to draw grandma now that she's running around all over underneath you what's happening namilla is that you're doing this while the kids are going crazy next to you Mm -hmm. Uh, somebody else is over there cooking grandma is trying to do the laundry and and go out to church or something but this is exactly how 99.9% of all things were created in the history of our 50,000 years, where the studio, the kitchen, the temple, the playroom, all of this was one room. It's only very recently that all that was separated out. So I would tell any listener now listening is... Now's the time. Spread your wings. What else are you going to do? You can only stay online so long. My God. Oh, I can help mm. you. 
It is so true what you say. And I really want to ask you, Jerry, about the article uh, that you published in Vulture last week. The article is called The Last Days of the Art World. And you outline the likely impact COVID-19 will have on the visual arts industry as a whole. Explain to us how you see this playing out. Well... The situation that we're in has been coming for a very, very long time, and now it's here. I never would have imagined it would come so horrifically, nor, of course, ever wished it. But the art world had grown enormous, bloated, gigantic gigantic with an obscene with money. It was disgusting to watch these big collectors spending as much as they could in public for art, long as other big collectors were watching them in these bizarre rituals of display. Meanwhile, artists were, frankly, art got too expensive to be perfectly honest, and that you had young graduates, you know, knowing of some kid that's making, you know, $50,000 for a painting, and they're only 22 years old. This art world had grown enormous, efficient, safe, etc. The old art world, the one I am from, was eccentric, inefficient, unprofessional. The art world isn't made up of like uh, accountants and business people. The art world was always made up of that weird shaman that lived on the edge of the village that smelled too much. The art world I know was made up of 'er ne'er-do-wells, outlaws, visionaries, geniuses, people like me that had nothing else they had to offer the world. Just people living on a prayer. And that is where art has always come from. It's not this big, slick, professional, expensive thing. It is that sometimes, and it is that too. But art will survive. Viruses come and viruses go. When this is over, art will be here. Like I said, art has been here since the caves. It's never not been here. And art will disappear only when all of the problems it was invented to address 50,000 years ago have been successfully addressed. And then it will go away. It sounds like you um, are looking at this current situation really in quite a positive way, but I'm wondering how you are feeling about things personally in terms of the way it'll impact a community that you so love. I'm heartbroken. I want all artists to make money, the good, the bad, and the very bad. I never think of myself as a real art critic even. I don't identify that way. As some of your listeners may know, I have no degrees. I never went to school. I was a long distance truck driver until I was 40 years old. I was too afraid to spread my wings the way I'm asking everyone out there to try something, to be willing to become embarrassed. Because I promise you, the minute you begin, it's going to be a little bit embarrassing. It's embarrassing for me every time I do something. But, you know, this is what it takes. It takes speaking back to the demons that tell you, you can't do this. You're a fake. You never went to school. You have a bad neck. You don't make enough money. You're terrible at schmoozing. You're not connected at all, and you're too short. Well, I have to tell all of your listeners, get to work, you big babies. (laughs) What? Just get to work. I want to tell them that work, not working is the easiest thing in the world to do. I know I spent decades not working, but there is only one thing that will take the 
curse of fear, the foulness that you feel inside from not working, from having some idiot idea that you know you're not doing, no matter how small or even big, there's only one way to remove that terrible curse, and that is getting to work, you big mm. baby. You've <laughs> got to do this. And again, don't be afraid of being embarrassed. Don't be afraid that your work might look like somebody else's. It will. Of course mm. it's going to look like other people's. My work sounds like other people's. What I want people to learn to do is to make art or make anything they make, but make it in their own voice. If you learn to draw grandma and make it look exactly like Vincent van Gogh, I guess what I would say to you is, well, congratulations, you're a good little artist. You've learned somebody else's skill quite well. Congratulations. Then I would say, now I want you to take that skill and draw grandma the way you want to draw her in your own voice. Because in that way and that way only will I know who lives inside of you. That's what art does. It reveals what's already in you anyway. And all art, I want to tell the listeners, all art that you see, even the stuff you hate, it requires courage. There's courage in every work of art you've ever seen. That person had to brave their demons to get back to work. That person had all sorts of traumas, the same traumas I have, or you have, mm. or that everyone has. All of that is embedded in your work. If you just work, it will be there. And speaking of work, you mentioned you were a truck driver, and, and I find that extraordinary. How do you make the leap, Jerry, from truck driver to arts critic? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, first I should tell our listeners that I am Jewish, so I didn't drive a gigantic 18-wheel truck. I don't, think, I don't think my people are allowed to somewhere in there. And I had a radio, uh, a CB we mm. called it, where you would talk to other truckers, and my handle, my name, was the Jewish cowboy. And I would get on and say, Shalom, partner, and they... <laughs> they never talked to me, ever. And no one ever talked to me in these goddamn uh, truck stops, I swear to you. They knew I was an outsider. Anyway, I grew so miserable in the 10 years that I drove. I knew I loved art, but I didn't know how to be in the art world. And one day I just thought, hmm, Maybe I'll be an art critic. That must be easy. And have you ever tried to write? Uh, I've written one book and I will never do it again. I hated the process. Because it's the worst thing in the... Yeah, you hated it. Every writer hates it. I, too, hate writing. It's a nightmare. It's so laborious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you can't listen to music. I can only listen to crap music when I write because I don't hear it. Anyway, I taught myself to be an art critic while driving a truck all alone across America, back and forth, by reading the biggest art magazine, which is called Art Forum. But here's the problem, Namilla. Mm -hmm. I would read it, and I didn't understand a word. And here's what the sentences sound like, and this is how I learned to write. They would start and say, the late capitalist post-Marxist simulacra and object finds itself in a dialectic against the nature-culture dichotomy. And I would read this stuff and I would go, what the hell are they talking about? And it was a nightmare for me. Mm. And then, sure enough, one of my other rules is just finish the damn thing. 
don't worry about making anything perfect. Mm. Nothing is perfect. I, mm. I promise you. Your haircut's not perfect. The Mona Lisa has boring bits in it. I can show you. Most of it is kind of boring, but that's a different story. Um, start writing what you actually think. Start drawing what you actually want to draw. Don't draw anybody else's idea of what art should be. Mm. Just do your own idea. And that's how I began to write. I decided I wanted to write not so only 155 people could understand what I was writing and then I would get to go to museums and be on panels and curators would like me. I decided I wanted to write in a way that people could see that I was an idiot or that I might have had a point. Do you know who Sister Wendy was? I know the name. Remind me who yeah. Sister Wendy was. She was a nun in the 1980s who, uh, from England who made a TV series about appreciating art. Oh, and that's yeah. the way I want to be. I don't want to be one of these critics on the top talking down to everybody. I want to be with everybody else talking about what we like, what we don't like, and all the rest. And this is all I want for everybody. My mm. book, How to Be an Artist, mm. will not make you a rich and famous artist. Mm. I, if anybody could write that book, I would love to read that because I too would love to become rich and famous. My book is written to help you have a life lived in art. What you take forward from this terrible time, this pause that may last six months, 12, in the United States it could last 18. We don't know. Mm -hmm. But what you do now, the things you model for yourself, for your children, for your psyche, you will take these forward for the rest of your days. And you will always have this beautiful memory that you tried. You did it. You got off your butt. You mm. put your butt in a chair. You tried to get up and go to the refrigerator and overeat for your fourth meal. And then finally, you put your butt back in a chair with the kids going crazy. And you started to make something. Maybe you taped a little teeny dance you always wanted to do, and you put it on Instagram. Well, mm -hmm. I say that is fantastic. I want all of us to become radically vulnerable. That means just do things in our own voice. Everybody, everyone is a freedom machine. Art was made in the concentration camps. Mm. It was made during the Black Death. It was some of the greatest art ever made in the 20th century was made during the influenza epidemic of 1918 and 1919. That's what we're living through. Others mm. have lived through it. This is not an extinction event. We will live through this. And whatever this is will be embedded in everything we do going forward. The love, the courage, the pleasure, the small pleasures and tender mercies of finding a moment of peace, even in the chaos and the hell that we all know we're all living collectively. On The Art Show, I'm speaking to New York Magazine art critic Jerry Saltz, who's also the author of the wonderful book, How to Be an Artist. Jerry, when it comes to being an art critic, what can you tell us is the key to writing a good art critique? Okay, that's a really great question. I would say keep it simple, stupid. Mm, okay. The KISS method. Okay. Yes, KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Art is already so darn odd and weird mm. and mysterious. I don't see any reason to try to make it any more complicated than it probably is. I would say write, describe what you see. 
because mostly critics never write about that. They're, with, they're often yammering and chattering about, like I said before, these big ideas, and you go, mm. I wonder what they're writing about. You never mm. quite know. And I would say, describe what you see, mm-hmm. say what you think it's doing, and then what you think of it. Never, ever ask what it means. For example, mm-hmm. you would never ask what Mozart means. I don't know what Abba means, but I know I want to dance barefoot every time I hear that sound. Mm. I would never ask, what does Abba mean? No, Abba doesn't know what Abba means. Bob Dylan famously said about the songs he writes, he said, yeah, I don't know where those come from. It's like a ghost lives inside of me and did it. Mm. I would say to all of your listeners, sit down, put your butt in the chair, and get out of your own way. Just start sewing, start singing, start sketching, use your camera to take pictures, do whatever you're called upon to do. And as an art critic, that's what I do, too. Same thing. Mm. I will try to tell you everything I'm thinking about what I'm seeing. And Mm. if you disagree, we disagree. I want to tell you all listening, art is subjective. No one can prove that Michelangelo is uh, better than a Sunday painter. You Mm. cannot prove it. Um, It's just not possible. What about the complication if you love the artist but not the work? Well, that happens a lot now because right before we entered this terrible time, we were living through a political, cultural, social revolution where after the first 50,000 years of art was almost all white male, what we were seeing is a complete uh, rewriting of the canon in a very beautiful, dramatic, scary, brilliant way where more women were being allowed into the canon, more artists of color. Obviously, this also means outsider artists. Mm. Now, Sometimes the art you love, for example, I'm Jewish, I love Wagner. My parents who left Estonia to escape Stalin and then Hitler, they could not stand uh, Wagner's music because he was an anti-Semite. And I have no problem with that. They never wanted to hear a sound of it, even though it was beautiful. I suppose I had the luxury of hating the man, but loving the work. Mm. And sometimes with your close friends, you might love the woman or the man, but hate the work. Ooh, awkward. And mm. that's just the way, yeah, it is awkward, but... Art is like everything else. It's a little bit awkward. And I guess as, a, uh, as an insecure man who's lived with women his whole life, I would just advise, lie. <laughs> lie. <laughs> Tell us you love us. Even if you don't, we, we will go away and not bother you, okay? So when you don't love your friend's work, just do what you've done many times. Just lie, go, it's very good, and then they'll go away. (laughs) Well, because, you know, I I think that you must have nerves of steel at times, really, because it it must be inevitable that write-ups will create enemies. So I I was just thinking about the psychology of kind of pushing um, that possibility of, of creating yet another enemy aside just to give an honest, constructive critique, knowing that you'll likely cross paths with this particular artist or curator? Yes. I I have to say that I think that all of us owe a few things to ourselves and our own work. One is do not be defined by your rejection. Mm. As you mentioned, Namila, 
I know that when I write about something I don't like, a lot of people are going to be very upset with me. Mm. And I don't want people to be upset with me, but I understand it. Because I get upset if you don't like something I like or my friend's work or I think you've been mean. But the, honestly, here's what I think about criticism. First of all, you, have, you better develop some elephant skin. By that, I just mean don't be defined by the rejection. You're going to be rejected a lot. I am and I'm famous. And every day I Google myself and I am horrified by how many people hate me. <laughs> and I want to write back to everyone and go, no, I'm actually very nice. I'm sorry. But the truth mm. is, I think that in every criticism that you're willing to listen to and, and put aside yourself for a minute, in every criticism there is a grain of truth. You have to say to yourself, what did I do when I took that photograph that made that person think I was making art about, you know, uh, water lilies, when really I was making art about scrambled eggs? If you accept that there's a grain of truth, you will be able to use that in your work. And the other thing I say to all people is there's nothing you can say about me and my work that I have not said 100 times worse mm. about myself all day, every day. Those are the demons we all live with. So you can't hurt me because I've hurt myself much worse than that. So get over your fear of criticism. You will be criticized if you're very lucky, and you'll pick up little pieces of advice from it, and the rest you use as revenge fantasies to kill the person. It works. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> you know. In your book... Why not? <laughs> Oh, wow. I did not expect you to finish the sentence in that way. <laughs> Art is fun. In your book, How to Be an Artist, you yeah. make the bold statement in one of your chapters, chapter 24, that there are no wasted days. And I love that because a few weeks ago on The Art Show, we spoke to British Turner Prize winner Helen Kamek, who focuses her work a lot on the idea of idleness. <sighs> What's your take, Jerry, on the role of idleness within creativity. Wow. That's beautiful. I, I do think, God, that's beautiful. Uh, I think that if you can get over criticizing yourself, that those hours now that you're just taking long walks or hiding from your children or whatever it is you're doing, all of that is there to help you when you need it. You just don't know when you're going to need it. It's so true. So, it's part of the process, yeah. isn't it? I really don't think there's yeah. idleness necessarily because even those quiet moments, you're actually being very proactive in, in terms of how you're thinking about processes and thinking about creating. Brilliant. You, you are obviously an artist uh, in your process, I can tell, because you grant that possibility. There is another side to idleness, which is fear, mm. which is pro procrastination, which is a self-harming form of idleness. Mm. I would just ask you to say, if it's more than 60% of self-harming idleness, maybe don't be so idle. Maybe get to work, you big baby. And you don't have to work all day. You only have to work a little yeah. while and then go do something stupid. I don't care. I do it. Go look at Twitter. Mm. Uh, go online. Go get mad at the government. All of that will end up in your work. But really, just be honest with yourself. Doing nothing mm. is doing something to a point. <sighs> That's a beautiful way to sum that up, I reckon. Um, the one chapter that really made me laugh, mainly in recognition, was chapter 29, Artists are Cats, Art is a Dog. <laughs> Can I get you to explain that to us further? <laughs> okay, now, Miller, do you have a cat or a dog? 
I don't, uh, yeah, I don't have either at the moment, but we're working towards getting a dog. We just need to choose. It's got to be the family decision on yes. what breed of dog. Yes. Okay. I want all of your listeners to um, <laughs> close their eyes and call a dog. Just say, come over here, big uh, spot. Come here, Spot, and Spot will trot over to you and put his head on your lap, wag his tail, slobber on your leg, and that's kind of an, a beautiful thing. That's a direct communication with another species. Now imagine, listeners, of calling a cat on the other side of the room, and you go, come here, Fluffy. And Fluffy might look at you and twirl her tail, rub her back on the couch, and then kind of turn away and lie back down again. What I want you to understand is the difference between how the cat and the dog communicated with you. The dog communicated with you directly. The cat however, put a third object between itself and you to communicate. It flicked its tail, it uh, like looked at you and licked its mouth and then touched mm. the couch. That is what artists are doing. That's what I mean when I said artists are cats. They don't communicate directly. Mm. It's indirectly, like mm. Mozart or Abba or Rembrandt. You never quite know what they're saying, only that they've embedded thought in their actions. And that is life-changing. That is the alchemy that changes mud into gold, that changes seven silly notes into a song to cry by. We've all cried. Have you ever cried at a painting? More times what? than I can even count. Yeah. yeah. How does that happen? How? How? Why, when I yeah, when I look at a Rothko, a Mark Rothko, which essentially is floating, fuzzy rectangles that look like Buddhist television, sort of two televisions with nothing on. Why do some people cry? Or if you look at Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, people cry. Other people might cry at a tiny little ivory carving, right? Mm. We, that's other people's thought embedded in material. And that's the cat miracle. One sentence in your book that distracted me for ages because I had to go away, it was just a lot of brain food for me. It really poked mm -hmm. my brain in wonderful ways. It was the sentence, this is why all artists know that bad art teaches you as much as good art, maybe more. What's the lesson yes. that's taught through engaging with bad art? Because that requires a lot of persistence. Right. It does. That's Namilla has just given all of you the answer. First of all, if you only like Rembrandt and Michelangelo, well, good for you. You have typically pretty good taste. You learned it from the culture. You're practicing it. What I would say is look at something you don't like. Let's say a Damien Hirst shark suspended in a tank of formaldehyde, okay? Mm. Most people don't like that artist. He's a contemporary British artist. What I want you to do with all art that you don't see in galleries, museums, uh, art fairs, everywhere, is ask yourself this question. Just pause and say, what would I like about this if I were the kind of person that did like this? And just do that for two lousy minutes. Two minutes is all I'm asking. Mm -hmm. And what you will do is you'll start making an incredible checklist of items. You'll go, hmm, the paint is very rough. The paint is very brown. It's very thick. It's abstract. And you're naming qualities that you are now able to use as 
uh, weapons of mass destruction in your, for the good in your own work. Often artists will look at a bad painting and go, well, I like that it's shiny. I hate the painting, but it's shiny. That's what I want people to do. Just figure out why on earth some people would like this, and I promise you, you are holding one of the keys to creative heaven. You will start to learn the secrets, the mysteries of what the heck everybody is going, you know, mm. on about. My guest today on The Art Show is the Pulitzer Prize winning American art critic, Jerry Saltz. Jerry, in your book, How to Be an Artist, you encourage people to see as much art as they can. And a big part of your job is going to see art. But with COVID-19, all our galleries and museums are temporarily closed. So how are you able to keep working at the moment? That's a big question, and it's hard for me. My wife, Roberta Smith, who's the chief art critic, or co-chief, mm. sorry, uh, art critic for the New York Times, we see as many as 20 or 30 gallery shows a week. And wow. the mm. withdrawal, let me tell you, mm. is severe. Mm. Because I loved doing this, and then we would trundle home and write about what we saw. That was our job. That's over. What I've decided to do in this time, since I can't go to uh, galleries, etc., is to try to take my work deeper. I don't want to make just a list of art you can see online. I'm, I'm not against people that do that mm -hmm. at all, mm -hmm. but that, that's not what I'm trying to do. I want to push my work in areas that I've always thought there's certain things just under the surface of a lot of old, great or bad art, and I want to push myself much further and see if I can start to unpack those mysteries and do it in public, in front of everybody, in live time. Even if I make an idiot of myself, I do want to try. Mm. So that's what I'm doing in this downtime. And then when it ends, you know what happened after the last pandemic of 1918-19? The Roaring Twenties started. Oh. Mm. No one remembered. No one writes about that period. It's a it's a blank in time because a survival mechanism is all people want to forget. I don't blame people. Mm. After September 11, many of us in America thought the war machine would finally be killed. In, instead, America became more of what it already was, which was warlike. Mm. After the 2008 financial collapse, we all talked about that, oh my God, that just got too much. And what did the world do? It only became more of what it already was and got hyper uh, um, capitalized, busy, and the financial collapse, mm. yeah, it was really hard but it just didn't change much. Will this change us? Mm. We don't know mm. yet. You mentioned your wife uh, before, Roberta Smith, who, as you say, is also an art critic. I'm wondering what lockdown life looks like for the two of you. How are you spending your days? Right. We're in a rented house in the northwest corner of Connecticut. That's about two hours north of New York City. We rent this house a year round. It's in the country. We are on day about 18 of sheltering in place. And up here, we work in the exact same small room. And I frankly love it. I love staring at her while I'm working. I'm very romantic that way and pathetic, <laughs> but I'm very happy. Never stop. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's actually refreshing to hear, especially when you he hear people complaining no. about spending so much time with their partners. Yeah, no, we're <laughs> never going to see this much of each other, I promise everybody, for the rest of our lives. This is it, friends. If your relationship can get through this, 
you're okay. But we work all day, every day. I'm trying to work, as I say, harder than I've ever worked before. And there is something I need to say about that, if I'm to be very honest. My industry, when I was younger, there were thousands of art critics. At this point, before coronavirus, there were down to maybe 50, 40, 30. I am the last of my kind. And so mm-hmm. I take it as my job very seriously to, to write as hard as I can, as often as I can, to try to earn my way, to try to somehow give voice to whatever I'm seeing. And someday, if there's no more use for what I do, then I will go away. And I understand that. And I accept it. I don't love it, but I accept it. It's just the way it is right now. Before we finish up, Jerry, do you take off your art critic hat from time to time to pop back on your artist hat? Do you dabble still? <laughs> never, 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 never. I, tr- I thought at one point, and I wrote a long article about this called My Life as a Failed Artist. And it talked about this amazing moment where I had, where I found all of my old work, about 700 drawings that I had made in my 20s. And they had been lost in some girlfriend's closet who then I brought it to another girlfriend. I was pathetic. And then finally I looked at it and I was all alone for hours with it thinking, I'm a bloody genius. I'm one of the greatest artists who ever lived. I'm going to be an artist again. I'm going to start again. My whole life is going to reignite as what I was meant to be, which was a great artist. And I went and got Roberta, who's the best art critic alive. And in my opinion, Roberta Smith is one of the great art critics who has ever lived Mm -hmm. and I showed her my work and she was very quiet Namilla and I I said isn't this great isn't this great look at this and she went it's okay and I went what do you mean what do you mean I'm a genius look at this and she went listen and then to make a long story short she said basically you were making very good art for that time, but you had not found an original way to do it. You were not making art in your own voice. You were making it in the common dialect, and you were not pushing through the bigger problems in your work, and that you weren't committed enough, obviously, to keep doing it, and so you quit doing it. She wasn't being hard on me, and Mm -hmm. she said, you did the right thing. You went to hell, becoming a truck driver, but you ended up in heaven. And she wasn't wrong. So That is such that, a gift to have someone it? be that honest with you, that loves you enough to oh be God, that honest. Oh, my God, it hurt. Try having yeah. sex with somebody like that. It's a nightmare. <laughs> Kidding. Kidding, Australia. It's just a joke. Um, <laughs> no, I'm It was very lucky for me because I could have made another really wrong turn and Roberta would have left me. It would have been a mess. I'm really glad. I don't want to make art anymore. I'll leave that to all of your listeners. Just make bad art for me. That's all I'm asking. That's all I do all day. I make bad things. If, If I, who have no degrees and am a total loser can win a Pulitzer Prize. I promise every listener here, you can do at least that good. You can probably do better. Jerry Saltz, what an absolute treat to chat with you. Thank you so much. Oh, n- uh, the same, Namilla. Your, your spirit uh, ignites me, and I'm really grateful for you, the show, and what you do for art. I hope your listeners know how respected and loved you are. So thank you. Jerry Saltz, Pulitzer Prize winning art critic for New York Magazine and author of the book How to Be an Artist, which is published by Hachette.
Megan Cope is a Melbourne-based artist who works across installation, painting and video. And she's part of the brilliant Indigenous art collective called Proper Now, which include artists like Richard Bell and Vernon R. Key. Much of Megan's work is inspired by the stories of her people and their country, and that's Kwandamooka country on North Stradbroke Island in Queensland. Here's Megan reflecting on Kwandamooka country and how it shapes her art. When I was uh, very young, I used to have dreams of like being underwater all the time. It feels really deep and connected to who I am as an artist or as a person, as a person first and then an artist, yeah. Kwanamooka country is in Moreton Bay, um, which is about an hour from Brisbane. So our country is surrounded by water, so you know, it's these beautiful turquoise colours, um, dark indigos. Um, the water is very clean. It's full of life. You see dolphins, you see turtles, stingrays, manta rays. Um, in the winter, the yelling billow whales migrate, so you can see them passing through. Um, yeah, beautiful white sand, really bright white sand. Koalas, kangaroos, it's actually really full of life, our country, it's really beautiful. My work is about challenging grand narratives and the mythologies that permeate out of colonisation and where that situates us as Aboriginal people. So, you know, a lot of the things I explore, it goes, it delves into history and it... Um, represents facts or moments but in a way that includes us as Aboriginal people in a positive way or in a truthful way. Um, sometimes the truth isn't always positive um, but you know my work is about making space for us to then reclaim and have autonomy in those stories. For us the role of art is paramount to our survival. It is one of those places where we do have autonomy, where, you know, it is one of those spaces where we can express ourselves freely. Um, and lots of Indigenous people do that in different ways. Um, some actually maintain traditional practices. Some employ contemporary strategies to talk about contemporary realities. So I think that art is really, really one of the only places where that can happen um, safely. I started off about 10 years ago mapping and using military maps and parish maps of my country to kind of share where it is, what it looks like, and I started to put our place names and our people, our groups over the top um, in a dominant font um, or script. And I also started to map a sea level rise or five metres, I guess, to kind of situate us in the future, you know, and also as a way of inserting how our Indigenous relationship with a place is timeless or it supersedes colonial or Western constructs of time. So, you know, we remember when the last sea level rose. You know, we remember these things um, in our stories and when we, you know, when we're on country and we are talking to each other about time and events. So I wanted to kind of put all of that into these early paintings um, and share our way of relating to place. Then I started to, I guess, employ the same kind of strategy, but I started to do place name projections into country. So then it brought it into the physical landscape because I realised maybe this map is too disconnected. And also I realised like how, 
you know, actually maps are key tools in um, key colonial tools in dispossession. So I kind of wanted to move away from that and actually bring those place names into the real environment. So they're not imagined or historical. They're now and they're real. Um, And then more recently, I've been looking at sculpture and um, the forms of middens to talk about a whole lot of issues that relate to perhaps the first industries that were... um, developed with the arrival of white people. When I was um, young, I used to go and stay with my nana over there. She had a little house and um, my vivid, most vivid memories would be in the back of the ute, like cruising through the bush, you'd go these back tracks and um, we'd get to Bumiera Brown Lake, which is beautiful tea tree lake, and um, just swimming with her, hanging out, going back home to her place and then um, laying on the veranda in the summer, um, watching the schools of fish come in. Um, she showed me all of those things to watch out for, to look for, how to travel through. Um, Those are my most vivid memories. I think they've really shaped a lot of who I am. Melbourne-based artist Megan Cope. And that's it for the Art Show on RN Summer this week. I'm Namilla Benson. My thanks to producers Anna Taylor and Rosa Ellen, as well as the wonderful RN sound engineers who put this show together. I'll catch you next week. And to take us out, here's Maisha with her song, Neon Moon. The sun goes down on my side of town. The lonesome feeling comes to my door. And the whole world turns blue There's a rundown bar across the railroad tracks At a table for two away in the back Where I sit alone and think of losing you Almost every night beneath the lights of a neon moon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.